You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we are walking through the book of Romans, and we've arrived now at chapter 13. And, And Paul has spent 11 of those chapters in the book of Romans explaining what God does for us and in us through the gospel of Jesus. And now, in view of those things... Paul moves from what I like to call the indicative to the imperative, meaning that Paul has told the the, the people in Rome, the church in Rome, this is what is true of you in the gospel, that this is what Jesus has done for you. It's not about your works, but it's about his, and that he's given his righteousness to you as a free gift. And so he talks about who we are in Christ, our identity that has been secured for us by Christ, and now he's going to talk about the imperative, meaning, meaning here's what you must do or here's how that changes your life. This is what a life looks like that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus. And so um, we can sort of think of it in, in this way. In, in the world of science, there's something called uh, Newton's laws of motion. And the third law says this. It says, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, meaning when an object exerts force on another object, there's, there's something that happens, right? That something moves, that something changes. Maybe it, it changes a course or a direction. So how does that apply to the situation at hand? Well, when we come into contact with this gospel that has been explained to us for 11 chapters, um, it acts upon us and it produces in us an equal reaction. So what, what we saw really at, at the turning point of Romans, which starts in chapter 12, this, this movement from the indicative to the imperative, um, is that Paul says we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God and that this is logical, that this is a, a reasonable thing to do in light of the glorious truths of Romans 1 through 11. So... If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and it acts upon us to change us, then there's an equal and opposite reaction, meaning we turn from our sin and seek to do what is good in God's sight. So it's not by our sheer self-determined action that we strive. It's simply a reaction that's been empowered by the gospel. So, so what I would like for us to do, especially if you're, this is your first time coming around Sojourn, um, What you need to recognize before we get started in any of this, before we even begin to read this list, is understand that Paul has gone through 11 chapters in which he has explained how it is not about our works, but that it's about what Jesus has done on our behalf, and that it's out of that, that it's by that that supreme action in Jesus that we now move forward, move towards a life that doesn't reflect our our previous sinful nature. So following Jesus is not just simply another morality. It's not just simply something that we look at and go, okay, here's the checklist. As long as I avoid these things and then do these things, then I'll sort of obtain or, or work up enough good merit, enough good favor in God's eyes that he'll look at me and say, well done. No, no, the entire book of Romans, in fact, posits the complete opposite, which is that we were wholly incapable, but that now through Christ we are capable, and that's where that power and that strength comes from. And so as Christians, we don't work for our salvation, we work from our salvation, a salvation that's been provided in Jesus. 
Now, for those of you that were here last week, you'll notice that we've skipped the first half of chapter 13. Um, there's a couple reasons for this. I typically don't enjoy skipping portions, um, but thematically, it makes sense with verses uh, 1 through 7 being somewhat of an aside. Um, it's also for the sake of time, as we hope to finish up Romans. Um, again, if you're new, we've been in Romans since January. So that tells you um, how long we've sort of been walking through this. But if you have questions about those, those verses, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 13, feel free to shoot me an email or uh, give me a call. I'd love to, to talk to you about those. With that said, today's sermon is entitled, Our Spiritual Worship, Putting on Christ. And we have three points if you're taking notes. Uh, the first point is our gospel debt. Uh, the second point is our gospel love, and then the third point is our gospel clothing, and I will do my best to sort of uh, walk you through these. Um, so let's get into our, our first point. Last week, we talked about love and how it should be genuine. We talked about how this genuine love ultimately plays itself out in the body of Christ. So remember, um, when, when Paul is writing the book of Romans, he's, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a body of people, and so he's told them their identity in Christ, and now he's telling them how that works itself out. And he says, if you've been changed by Jesus, it's going to play itself out in a love for one another. So we talked about this idea of the, the, the body of believers, the church, Christians, walking together in love, that our love should be genuine towards one another. And we acknowledged very humbly the fact that, that, that more often than not, that is not true of us as Christians, right? I mean, like, most of us, if we've been alive for more than 10 minutes and we've stepped foot inside of a church, which is most likely the case in Texas, um, we've experienced the fact um, that, that that's not always the case, that our love is not always genuine towards one another. And yet, um, that is still something that we strive for in light of what Christ has done for us. And so we talked a lot about how this idea of love plays itself out among the body, like among people who would claim Christ as Lord and Savior. And now what Paul is going to do is move to how that love plays itself out, not only among the people of God, people who would claim Christ, but the people of God in the world. So this is, this is what Paul is going to say about love, not just for one another as Christians, but for everyone. For everyone that we come into contact with, which we'll see as we begin to define what this term neighbor means for us. But so uh, with this first point, our gospel debt, let's just read uh, verse eight. It says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So in the previous portion of Romans 13, in that, in that first seven verses, we begin to see that Paul actually does address this idea of debt, and not necessarily that Christians shouldn't have it, but that they should pay it back according to the terms of whatever agreement. But although the Christian is, allow, is, is not allowed for debt to remain outstanding, they're not allowed to sort of remain in this perpetual state of debt towards someone, meaning we, we pay back what we owe. Paul says there's one debt that you will never fully pay, that you will never finish paying so long as you breathe. And that debt is to love one another. So the, the obligation to love for the Christian has, has no limit. Like there's never going to be a moment in your life if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus that you get to stop and say, I've loved enough. That, that's what Paul is saying here. 
So if you're a Christian in the room, there will, there will never be a time in this life where you will get to rightfully claim that. You'll never be in a position in which that will be true of you. And, and, and what's interesting about that is we can very quickly, very easily be tempted to see, okay, well, wait, that's, that's works. So what you're telling me is that, that Jesus has already perfected me, he's given me his righteousness, but that I still have to, to do these things. And, and Paul is saying, yes, in light of that truth. But here's, here's what, I would, what I would urge you to see. If you're, if you're a Christian in the room and you're interacting with this in a way that you think, man, that's a, like, that's a burden. <laughs> like having to love and care for somebody else, that's a burden. And that's a debt that, that not only do I owe, but it's one that I can't fully pay back. What, what exactly are you trying to, to place on my shoulders? For those of us that are not Christians in the room, that might seem not very attractive. Um, because if we're honest with ourselves, our, our culture is much more geared towards, towards loving ourselves rather than, than others. But what I would urge you, Christian in the room, when you, when you read this, do you see how our community could be so much more beautiful, so much more satisfying, and so much more God-exalting if we came to the table every day saying, how can I better love and serve my brothers and sisters? Like, like that, that's something just a, a little bit different. There, there's not a lot of instances that we walk into with that line of thinking. More often than not, what we do is, is dictated by how is this going to serve me? If we're honest, I mean, that's, that's true of, of me, too, more, more often than not. And so it's, it's painful to read this text, and it's painful to say what I'm saying to you, knowing that I fail at this every day. But to follow Jesus is to come to the table, offering all that we have, knowing that in Jesus we've already been given everything that we need. And so, so this is the difference between a, a, a church or a body of people, a group of believers that come to a, to a church simply to be served or to sort of consume another religious good or another religious service and a people who are wholeheartedly devoted to the love and care of one another. And see, that's, that's the difference between sort of why people have problems with church and, and why people can't ignore maybe the fact that the, the gospel is true. When people begin to, to interact in this way, that's the turnkey. Like, that's what changes things. And so if you're a Christian in the room and, and, and you're, you're longing to be a part of a church that is faithful, that is authentic, um, you want to be a part of a church that reaches people, let me tell you, we're not going to reach people by providing some light show. We may attract people to, to, again, a religious good or service, but we haven't attracted them to the gospel. It's when we love and care for one another. It's when we love and care for our neighbors in spite of what it may cost us that this gospel, that this truth becomes true. And so if you're not a Christian in the room, you... You've probably, if you live in Texas, you've engaged with Christians at some point, and, and you've seen that they act pretty much like everyone else. And, and I mean, that's, that's a shame to some degree. And I'll, I'll tell you this right now. If you've walked into Sojourn for, for the very first time, we, we will fail to do these things day after day. 
Like that's, that's going to happen. We, we will fail you. If you stick around here, if you, if you continue to visit Sojourn, if you continue to interact with the Christians here, um, we will fail you. We will love you poorly. But our hope is that in whatever imperfect way we can, that we would show you the love of him whose love is perfect and whose love is unchanging. Because the, the weight of this text that says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law has, has already been released. It's already been relieved by someone else. So we're going to talk about that um, a little bit later. But so when Paul says this, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, what, there, there's something key that we have to understand about this. Because again, our, our temptation is to look at the law Right to look at these things that we're about to read in terms of um, in terms of not stealing, not committing adultery, not murdering. We tend to look at those and say, "Look, you're just trying to restrict my freedom." And yet, what Paul says is that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, meaning that um, the goal of the law, the direction of the law, is not necessarily simply the restriction of freedom. But it's that God shows concern for us in that he would have us love one another rather than harm one another. Right? So, so here's the thing. We, we all know this. Whatever list you read in the Bible, doesn't matter which one. You could go to Exodus and read the Ten Commandments. You can read any of sort of the, the moral commands in, in James or in any of the epistles. And, and you will soon notice that there is not a single person that, that has lived up to that. So here's the thing, even though it says here, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, meaning that it's possible to do so through the law. If we stay true to the body of Romans, if we recall Romans chapter three, we begin to recognize that none of us will be able to accomplish this. But the good news, the news of the gospel is that somebody else did so Paul isn't saying that the only law, the only thing that sort of dictates Christian living now is love. But what he is saying is that the law, when acted upon, actually manifests love. So, so here's what I mean by that. Christian, if you want to love your brother and sister, a, a, a good idea would be to not commit adultery against them. Right? So it's not sheerly just don't do this because it's bad. It's, look, if you want to show love to someone, then you probably shouldn't covet them because you know what that's going to produce in your heart. I had to repent of this this week. A friend of mine got something that I have wanted for a really long time. And you know what? I was like, man, if I can't have it, he shouldn't have it. And at that moment, that's, that's not love acting in my heart to, to, to care for and love that person. That's anger acting up in my heart because of the fact that I've chosen to covet. So again, it's not, it's not necessarily just don't covet, just don't do these things. It's like, look, if you want to love and care for this person, set aside what you think you deserve and, and live into that, love into that. So that is our, our gospel debt. Our, our gospel debt is to love one another. It's a debt that we won't ever repay, but it is a debt that we have been given the energy and the strength to pursue because we look at Jesus 
and, and his love for us. So that was our gospel debt. Now we move into second point, our gospel love. So what does this love look like? So if we're indebted to love people, if we're indebted to love people, no matter race, color, creed, Christian, not Christian, whatever it might be, if we're indebted to do that, what does it look like um, to do so? Uh, verses 9 through 11 say this, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. So all of those things are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So there's a a couple of questions that we have to ask ourselves, right? Because he says um, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and he says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. So a couple of questions that we're going to ask ourselves. The first question, who is our neighbor? Right? So if the, if the Bible is calling us as Christians to, to love our neighbor, who is that? Well, our neighbor is, is anyone we encounter in life who needs our help, right? There's a, there's a great moment in the, in the book of Luke um, where Jesus sort of explains a, a parable. They're trying to kind of ask him trick questions, and, and he tends to answer them fairly well. But he gives this great parable. He talks about there's this man who's, who's been on a journey, and and. In the middle of that journey, he's, he's belayed, he's, he's sort of, um, he's attacked by, by robbers. And in that moment, they, they not only take all that he has, but they, they sort of leave him for dead. They've, they've beaten him to a pulp. And, and he's lying there in the road, and, and, and he then begins to describe three people that walk by. So there's, there's one guy that kind of walks by, just ignores it, just doesn't even look at it, doesn't want, doesn't want to sort of be even partially moved to help that person. He's just going to keep his eyes sort of straightforward and keep moving. Talks about another guy that kind of looks, walks by, sees him. Okay, still going to move forward. And then he talks about this third guy, this, this guy that we now know as the, the Good Samaritan that walks by, he sees this man in need. He picks him up. He dresses his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He walks him to the nearest town. He puts him up in an inn and he tells the innkeeper, hey, here's some extra cash and whatever it is that you have to spend to take care of him over and above this amount, I'm going to come back and repay you. Now, so the, the, what, what Jesus' question in that moment is, is not, was the Samaritan obligated to this person? Because, because he wasn't. He didn't know this guy from Adam. It's just a guy that's been, that's been beaten up. And, and Jesus, at the end of that story, says, who do you think loved their neighbor? And everyone, his antagonizers even, answer the third one, the good Samaritan. He loved his neighbor. And so this idea of loving our neighbor is not simply restricted to our Christian neighbors that maybe we like or get along with because they share the same value system. But it's everyone. It's everyone that we encounter in our life who needs our help. So that's the answer to the first question, who is our neighbor? The second question we have to ask, what does it mean to love these people, these neighbors, as we love ourselves? What does that, what does that mean? 
Well, essentially, Paul is saying that we are to have the same loving regard for others that we instinctively have for ourselves. And, he, and here's the thing. We've read this thing so many times. Even if you're not a Christian, you've heard this before. It's the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Right? You've, you've heard this before. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we, if we take sort of just a brief moment to think about what drives our actions on a daily basis, more often than not, it is out of concern for yourself. Is it not? I mean, you, you order your life around yourself. What are my needs? What kind of house do I need to have? What kind of car should I drive? What kind of wife should I have? What characteristics should they have that make me feel happy? In what way does me going to this event or doing this thing serve myself? Maybe I'm the only one. I know that's true of me. And what, what Paul is saying is that same concern, that same sort of level of decision-making that you have throughout your day-to-day -day life where you think through, man, how's this going to affect me if I do this? How's that going to change the way I live? How's this going to, how's this going to have ramifications, not only for, for me, but sort of for my comfort? He's saying, man, look at your neighbor, look at that stranger that you don't even know but needs your help and think of them with that kind of thinking with that line of thought. That's what it means to love others as ourselves. Here's a, here's a really stupid example, okay? Um, but just to, just to bring some humor to the situation. So there's this thing called the cinnamon challenge. Um, uh, some people are laughing, so they know what that means. But essentially, it's just, hey man, I dare you to eat a tablespoon of cinnamon. Um, Essentially, it's impossible. Uh, it, uh, it, it soaks all of the moisture out of, out of your mouth and then, and then ultimately ends up with you sort of spewing out a cloud of, of cinnamon. Now, here's the thing. If somebody were to come to me and ask me to do that, I'd be like, no, that's stupid. Because I've see, I, know, I know what that's going to do to me. I know that, one, it's, it's not going to be fun for me. It's going to be fun for you to watch, but it's not going to be fun for me. Um, and I, I know more than likely I'm going to inhale cinnamon, which means I'll be coughing that up for, for a few days. And so in light of that, I'm going to care for myself by choosing not to do this. But the moment somebody tells my friend, hey, you should do the cinnamon challenge, I'm like, yeah, dude, you should do that. <laughs> you should totally do that. <laughs> in that moment, right, I've already processed it in terms of how is this going to benefit me. Well, it's not going to benefit me, so I'm not going to do it. But if somebody else wants to do it, because it's funny and I'm going to laugh at it, I'm going to go ahead and encourage them to do that. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a silly example, but... That is the way that we process so many of our, of our life's decisions. Look, man, I don't, I don't care what you do with your money, but this is what I'm going to do. Look, man, I, I don't care what you choose to do with, with, with this thing, but this is how I'm going to do it in order to preserve myself. And yet what Paul is calling us to is the complete opposite, that we would begin to look at others and think in that way. And so the first thing that comes to mind for a Christian is not how is this going to affect me or how is this going to, to benefit me? It's how is this going to benefit others? How is this going to affect the other people in my life? How is this going to affect my neighbor? How am I going to 
give them love rather than give myself love through them. So the, the, the two questions we answered was, who is our neighbor and what does it mean to love them as we love ourselves? The third and final question under this point is, does this mean I still get to love myself as long as I love my neighbors the same way? Right? So he tells us to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So who's the neighbor? What does it look like to love them in that way? And does this mean then that I get to love myself still? Because that sounds like what Paul is saying. But the answer to that question is no. You see, in our, in our present culture, enamored as it is with the cult of, of, of self-esteem, it is necessary to point out that Jesus' words are not a command to love oneself, but a recognition of the fact that we naturally do so. Like, so that's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, okay, love yourself, then love other people like you love yourself. He's saying, no, look, you already tend to do this, so this is just a great opportunity for an example. Jesus spoke of the first and the second commandment, but never of a third, right? We're called to love with a selfless love, which cannot be turned in on itself. More often than not, if we're honest, self-love is what leads us to sin, right? So we love ourselves and our own comforts more than God and others. And so we do whatever we must do to hold on to them. So if you're a Christian in the room, and hear, hear this, if you're not a Christian in the room, I'm I'm not talking to you. I'm not trying to conform you sort of to a, a moral value, but I am trying to tell you that in the gospel, we've been freed from that, and because of that, we, we live changed lives. But so if you're, if you're a Christian in the room, what is it that leads you to, to not give to the church? More often than not, it's your, it's your own comfort. It's your own desire to, 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 to withhold for your own benefit, because you know that if you just hold on to this, well, then, then when the rainy days come, I'm set. Or, or what is it that, that, that leads you to, to not gather with the saints? What is it that leads you to, to not be in community with, with other believers? More often than not, it's, well, I want to do what I want to do. More often than not, it's, there's people in that group that I don't like, so I'm not going to go there. But what we've learned from the gospel is that people who don't like each other come to love each other because of the truth that is true of both of them, that we've been adopted into the same family. And if you have a family, you know that no matter, no matter how many bad things have happened between you and your family, they're still family. So does this mean we get to love ourselves as long as we love our neighbors the same no, because loving your neighbors the way you love yourself is going to require you not to love yourself. We see that perfectly, purely displayed in the work of Jesus, who although he already had everything, he gave it up. He disdained himself to the point of taking upon himself humanity. And then he went to the cross on our behalf. So the gospel is the impetus for loving in this way, but there's even more reason to do so, and it's stated in verse 11. It says this, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So if you're a Christian in the room, the, the hour has come. You've been awoken from sleep, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Romans tries to tell us. It says that, that, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians, but similar message in Romans. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but, but by the grace of God, we've been made alive in Christ. And so each day we get closer to the moment that our salvation is fully completed. Now, now 
hear the way I say this, right? Your, your justification is secure. Like, like the, the fact that you will stand before God blameless because of the work of Jesus, that is secure. And yet we all know that we still struggle against all of the, the many different things of this world that we still fall, that we still fail on a daily basis, that we still struggle and battle against the power of sin, that we still, many of us, live in sort of this Romans 7 lifestyle where we are constantly doing what we don't want to do and not doing what we do want to do. The beauty of Romans in chapter 8, that following chapter, tells us that, look, what God decrees comes to pass, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, that those who he predestined, He's justified that those who he's justified, he's called. And that those who he's called, he'll glorify. Right? Like that that's going to happen. So, that moment is coming. And so what all Paul is saying is, let's put away our evil deeds as we are brought more fully into light. So Christian, you can't fulfill the law, period. But you can't even hope to try apart from people. Do you, do you see that? You, you, no, none of us can hope to fulfill the law, but we can't even hope to try apart from people. Because what, what Paul is saying is that it's through love that, that the law is fulfilled. And he says it's through loving your neighbor. And so that means if you're a Christian, both in the gospel community, meaning in the church of Christ, you need to be loving others, but also in every other circle of influence that God has placed you in. You can't even hope to be like Jesus apart from people. You can't. So you can't retreat into the community of Christ and away from the world. We are still in the world. We're just not of it. You can't retreat from from the community of Christ, only taking it when it's comfortable, easier, beneficial. You, you have to step into it in love. How, th- this, this is the ultimate question in all of this. For, for those that are not believers, how will they be able to investigate the truth of Christ's claims if we huddle away in our basement sucking our thumbs? It, it, it's not going to happen. If you're not a Christian in the room, what, what, I, would, what I would hope is that um, this in some measure should, should be attractive because much of our striving, I think, is, is seeking after refuge. It's seeking after sort of a place, a safe place, a place where we can be ourselves, a place where we can be us without having to put up any, anything else, any kind of front. And, and ultimately, that's, that's, that's the church, And so many times, trust me, I know, so many times the church has not been that to you. In fact, many, many non-believers are non-believers because of the church. And many become believers in spite of the church. And that's a damning thing. But the, the, the community of Christ, this place where people love one another as they love themselves, this people where people, this place where people lay down their what they think they may even deserve for the good of another. That's a safe place. That's a place of freedom where you can be accepted. This is the place that we here at Sojourn are striving to be, imperfectly so, but we're striving to be. We know we won't do it perfectly, but there is someone who did it perfectly.
And so that is our second point, our gospel love. The final uh, third point, our gospel clothing. Romans 13, 12 through 14 reads like this. It says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify uh, its desires. So here's the thing. We've been given the clothing of Christ and his righteousness, right? I mean, that's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about. It's like, look, this is what you've been given in Jesus as a free gift. You've been given salvation. You've been given love. You've been given his good deeds. Your good deeds didn't measure up, so he gave you his. And so all Paul is telling us to do here is to put them on. Put it on. You got a new shirt. Put it on. Take, take off the old one and put on the new one. It's already yours. Are you just going to leave it in the closet with the tag on or are you going to rip that thing off and put it on? If we believe the gospel, then we know that what belongs to Jesus is ours because he's chosen to give it to us freely by his grace. So all that Paul is saying is it's time to wake up. It's time to put on your new clothes. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Our salvation is secure, but we have not experienced it fully. We will struggle and strive, but the promise is that we will be relieved of the struggles and the striving finally and fully one day. And that that day, each day, is one moment closer. This is good news, not, not bad news. The, the fullness of our salvation come, comes closer to us with each passing hour. We are in the last watch of the night, and the dawn of our salvation is about to break. And so all Paul is saying is that the dawn is coming. The dawn is coming. So what you wouldn't do in the light, don't do in the darkness, because the dawn is coming. Right? How many times, whether you're a Christian or not, your parents have told you nothing good happens after midnight? Right? <laughs> nothing good happens after midnight. So you better get that girl back from prom, stat. You know? <laughs> nothing good happens after midnight. The, the, the darkness, whether, as silly as this may sound, okay, the darkness, whether we would want to acknowledge it or not, often prompts us to do things that, that we wouldn't normally do because we feel like it's hidden. Right? There's a lot of shameful things that we've done in the dark in hopes that, that no one would see them. But all Paul is saying is, look, you've been given the clothing of Christ's righteousness. Put it on, and when the dawn rises, you will be counted holy and blameless. Again, not because of your works, but because of the gift, the sheer grace of the gift of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Remove the things that prompt or provide opportunities for sin and put on that which prompts love, the gospel of Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can make sure they don't build a nest in your hair. That's what he's saying when he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying, look, you're, you're going to struggle there's still going to be moments when, when, you know, one buzzes the tower. Like, that's, that's going to happen. But what you can make sure to do is that you don't build a nest for it. It doesn't settle there. You know, make a home. 
That's all he's saying. He's saying, put, put on your new clothes. And when the dawn rises, holy, blameless, pure, by the grace of God, through the work of Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. So to conclude today, I just want, to remind, I want us to be reminded of the gospel. See, it's tempting to look at what Paul says here and see our many, 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 many failures. Probably some of us, myself included, even today, even this morning, have made a provision for the flesh. It's tempting to look at our failures and to know that we will never fulfill the law because we'll never love anyone or even anything, including ourselves, perfectly. We're tempted to say that fighting for love is a losing battle, like fighting for our righteousness. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came because he knew we were fighting a losing battle and that he fought that battle for us and won it perfectly. It's because of his ultimate action of love that we react with an equal and opposite reaction of love. You see, love is completely, holistically opposing to pretty much everything that we do. We like, we like to think so, and we value love, and we esteem love. But the Bible tells us that, that we know love by the sacrifice of Christ. And so love in and of itself is a self-denial, not a self-propagator. Jesus exerted his love upon us wonderfully, and the only logical, reasonable reaction is to love one another and all of our neighbors with the same love of Christ that was given to us freely and without cost. Let's pray.